0: Is, is focused on changing the museum through these little pebbles that I'm contributing with, um, because I don't feel that everyone, not everyone I work with is asking these questions or um, wanting to challenge themselves. So, so I guess I've always been one that likes challenging things, and I like being challenged and maybe just seeing that as a skill set that I can contribute with. What part of my skill set can I contribute? Contribute with.
1: That was Charisse Gullickson. She's the curator and public sector PhD student in art history at the Arctic University of Norway. Charisse has a mantra, and that is museums are not neutral. They're institutions of culture and agents of change. This is a relatively new concept. Because historically, museums have been repositories of antiquities, often displaying artifacts with problematic pasts. This is an issue because without knowing its past, we may revere certain pieces of art and ignore their origins, which could result in perpetuating problematic ideas. So, a lot of Charisse's work is focused on contextualizing classic art so that it can be used as a tool for change. So here she is, Charisse Gullickson. Welcome to Chattermarks,
2: a
0: podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity
2: through the creative and critical thinking of ideas,
0: past, Past, present,
2: and and future. future.
1: My name is Cody Liska,
2: and I'll be your host.
1: Where do you think your passion or your interest in northern places
0: started? I guess it started um, back when. I mean, I'm I'm originally from from Alaska, and I've always been fascinated by this landscape and this place. And and for me, I guess I have two homes. Um, there's a Sami artist named Ilovash or Nils Aslak Volkepe. and he has a poem titled "My Home is in My Heart." And for me, I have two homes, um, one in Norway and one in Alaska. And for me, being back this year has been amazing because I've reconnected with Alaska. And Alaska has always been in my heart, but now its I feel like I have a stronger relationship again to to Alaska. And it's strange for me to move south to Anchorage (laughs) (laughs) um, because we live... Our town Tromsø or Romsø, as it's called in Sami, is sixty-nine degrees north. Um, so it's uh, it's different to um, yeah to be at a, a lower altitude again.
1: In what way is it different?
0: So we don't have um, we have a period of darkness during the winter or the polar night, and um, we don't have as tall of trees. Um, we're sort of more of a tundra, tundra landscape, um, but but we have the Gulf Stream, so it's more of a temperate climate, and um, and we have the midnight sun.
1: Do you feel like that change in scenery and climate affects you in any way?
0: Yeah, definitely. I I feel like I I get a lot of energy in Norway from my favorite season is winter and I get a lot of energy even during the dark period, which might seem strange, but it's kind of a time where you can meet with friends inside and also enjoy, you know, enjoy being outside. But, but here, I felt like there's been sunlight all year round. So I guess I've gotten energy in a different way. Mm -hmm. Like, um, with having more sunlight and, and it's with COVID, you know, I think everyone has been outside more than usual. And I've always been an avid, um, hiker and I used to be a competitive ski racer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I, I love being outside and I think that informs my work too. And, and right now in my practice, like thinking on, issues or themes I'm working with like outside has really um, influenced my work and had an impact. And that's how I've met with people too, you know, having dialogues with people outside, instead of having a meeting on zoom, just saying, Hey, let's go for a walk. And, uh, and um, yeah, I think, I think you think thing, you think through things differently when you're outside and in motion.
1: Have you thought About that? Have you thought that through? You know, how we think things or think about things differently when we're outside versus inside?
0: I have been this year. I don't think I've actually thought about it consciously before the COVID year. Um, but also realizing like the effects it has on my mental health if I don't get exercise or go outside.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so it's definitely been a more like um, conscious thing. And then in my work, I'm doing a lot of self-reflection on my, my own practice and my role as a a curator at a museum. And so it's kind of extends to then other areas of life. I mean, I, I've always felt like my work and life are kind of, they go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, just reflecting more on like being in nature and how, how it affects my life and work.
1: So you said that you're currently doing a lot of self-reflection on your practice. Have you uncovered or discovered? anything about yourself or your practice
0: yeah definitely i i mean it's a they say like doing your phd is is a journey and for me that's really um how i experience it and um basically like in my project i'm learning to see and learning to undo and it gives me the opportunity to look at my practice and you know kind of (laughs) trust my gut instinct that perhaps things we're doing today aren't sustainable for the future or perhaps aren't ethically acceptable like in in museums if we think of museums as social agents and agents of change Mm -hmm. and really delving into that I know that as a museum curator when you're in your day-to-day work and you're running from project to project and talking to artists and I don't think you really have the time or, or um, maybe not have the time but you don't prioritize reflecting on what you're doing and thinking like how could we do things differently and and that's what my project has given me the opportunity to do and I've worked at our museum since 2008 And it's an art museum in northern Norway, or in Sápmi, which is a Sami name for the territory the Sami indigenous people inhabit in Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've sort of seen, you know, I've been under two different leaderships at our museum and seen an institutional shift towards decolonization and that's why i'm so enthralled by the the work the anchorage museum is doing and seeing how i can bring that back to back to norway um and i've seen a change at our museum going from more of like a shrine or treasure based model of the museum to one that's working towards um being a social agent of change Mm -hmm. and and i'm like just a one you know like i'm i'm hoping that my project will be like one piece to to the larger picture of museums and um working towards change so it's it's hard work because i mean you but it's amazing because you can look at projects you know that i've done like 10 years ago and thinking today like how differently i would have done them now or like realizing like oh okay that's how it is so i i guess it's about part of decolonization or indigenization, which are themes I'm working on, is is really learning to see and making space for the whole truth and realizing that museums are not neutral. I guess that's like my major mantra in my project is museums are not neutral. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of museums and even ours have sort of hidden behind that facade for a long time. Um, and uh and that's the part of the the learning to see and realizing that your position, um, affects how, how you, <clears throat> how you see things and how you work through things.
1: I really like what you just said about the whole truth. What do you think the whole truth looks like?
0: Well, that's a big question. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know if I can tackle that one, but I maybe i should use an example from my my work you know i'm i'm doing an analysis of a painting from 1840 that's in our collections and it's not a random painting it's a it's a collection highlight or a treasure as as people often say in norway you know you hear about these treasures that are hidden in the basement or or usually i guess the treasures are the works that are always on view that people come to see and this painting we have typically displayed it you know with what we call a gravestone or a tombstone label with the artist's name um, date acquisition number perhaps like uh, credit to the funders of the acquisition and um, not really given people people or museum visitors a lot of context and um, i kind of wanted to look at this painting and And I'm proposing to unhighlight it because I saw problematic issues with it and, you know, museums can actively and passively frame things. And this was a painting that, without providing context, I argue that like we don't actually see, visitors can't see the painting. And it's a painting that is a portrayal of a missionary uh, named Lars Levi Lestadius and he was a missionary during that time it was painted so the painter is a romantic painter named Francois Auguste Biard and he traveled to northern Norway with a French research expedition in 1839 and actually met this missionary and then was commissioned by King Louis Philippe uh, to do this painting so he does a lot of sketches on his travels in uh, northern Norway and Svalbard and then returns to Paris to paint this painting that was shown at the Salon in Paris in
2: 1841
0: mm-hmm. and I guess like so that it shows Listadius preaching to a group of Sami people and it's a very like romantic composed landscape with over-exaggerated snowdrifts you know he visited Karaswondo which is the Swedish village where this is and there it was raining at that time so we know it's like a very composed landscape but it shows like what, how you would imagine um, a polar landscape or you know in this Arctic like landscape mm-hmm. but anyways we haven't provided context to visitors so I've been going into um, Lestadius's letters uh, and into the archives of newspaper letters he's written And he was actually a grave robber.
2: Hmm.
0: And so he he helped French scientists procure and and locate um, Sami skeletal remains, uh, crania, but also skeletons that were then stolen from these graveyards and sent to museums in the South in France and in Stockholm. And it was a means for him to alleviate his family out of poverty. And he's sort of this contested figure because he was part of the colonial Swedish church. You know, he's he's converting Sami people to Christianity, but at the same time he had Sami background himself and he preached in Sami. So on the one hand, like, Sami people are allowed to maintain their language, which was being taken away from them through these hard, brutal assimilation policies at that time. Um, but then on the other hand, he's like you know, stealing skeletal remains of the people that he's supposedly empowering. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot written on Lestadius, but not many researchers have focused on this aspect of him. So in my paper, I'm the, I'm the first one to translate in full these, um, quotes from his own writing. And I feel like that in itself is pretty amazing because, you know, these quotes, his letters are from the 1830s and 40s and, and they're just now being like made more accessible to people. So so it, I, I'm kind of like relating this debate to the larger global conversation about, about contested monuments and, and about these heroic figures that perhaps they had positive sides to them but they also might have had a darker darker side and and i guess that goes back to this idea of the whole truth and another issue i've been working with is like are we re-traumatizing people by bringing these histories more to the light or do we need to do it because it's it's part of the bigger whole truth story and then how do you tell this story to visitors how do you give them more context
1: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You know, how do you think we deal with these challenging pieces in museums that reflect outdated, darker ideas?
0: Yeah, you know, I uh, and I can speak like mainly to our museum. I mean, there's there's great interventional work I've seen going on at other museums. But I think a lot of times, you know, the museums have traditionally hidden behind the objects and not like brought these stories more to the foreground um but inner through intervention you can sort of disrupt that and i believe there's power in disruption because if you compare it to monuments you know people walk by monuments maybe they pass one every day when they walk to work or walk to school Mm -hmm. um and you don't really think about it and then an intervention can sort of stop you in your tracks and ask you to question or see things from another perspective and i think that's what art does a lot is is um enables you to see things from from different perspectives and makes you think about things you've never thought about or seen things from a new angle and so these highlights you know the museum hasn't been a neutral part in making it a highlight. So I'm questioning, like, should we, you know, with monuments, should we tear them down? Should we make a new one? Mm -hmm. How do you grapple with that? And, and I'm sort of relating that to collection highlights. Like how do we demote the painting or how do we see more sides of it rather than just, um, Praise it as like a uh, an object of aesthetic contemplation, but rather activate it and and see how relevant these paintings are today. You know, with the uh, Listodius, the painting of Listodius by Biard, um, there are still today many skeletal remains in collections in europe that haven't been repatriated even though they know where they come from and they're well documented like which family they belong to and so i feel like that that is a history that's embodied in this painting uh, making it very relevant today so you can't just shrug off historic paintings like they have much relevance today but how do we activate them as tools rather than you know just this complacent object that doesn't do anything
1: do you think that means including new text on a plaque or taking it down completely
0: i i feel like you have to add context to it so i don't think if we remove the painting then we couldn't have had these conversations either Mm -hmm. but i i believe it's all about adding context to it and and then having building relationships through that context. So, you know, going in dialogue with critical voices that perhaps haven't agreed that this is a treasure or should be a highlight, and then um, inviting that dialogue into the museum or even going, you know, outside of the museum and engaging engaging with the critique, leaning into it rather than like, ignoring it or shutting it down as as an attack of the museum or the collections so really i i don't think we should de-accession the painting or but that we need to contextualize it and activate it as a tool
1: Mm -hmm. because i think that when things are hidden from the public the public or certain portions of the public start to uh question why maybe it's hidden or taken down and then maybe they they form their own narrative true or false around that
0: right yeah and then i think museums too need to acknowledge that like if they if they don't know these stories then they need to they need to learn about them and and realize that there is lots of knowledge outside of the museum and then welcoming that into into the museum, or you know, co-creating, co-producing things, rather than being this authoritative voice that um, wants to claim it has all the answers, and and then maybe also being bold enough to to do it wrong. You know, you have to you have to fail to to be able to be successful sometimes. So like taking that stand of maybe we're not doing it right, but I think my approach in my work is always like trying to approach things with a good heart and a good mind and not having like hidden intentions or, or, um, trying to really question like what, why am I doing this work and who is it for? Um, and that, that I feel like you need to have when you approach anything and hopefully that will help, help the situation rather than, yeah, then, then the public sitting there you know thinking they're hiding something what is Mm -hmm. what is this all about
1: how does colonization figure into your work
0: so in in norway um there's this concept called nordic exceptionalism um there are a lot of theorists and scholars that believe norway has sort of ignored its colonial history and for me it's interesting to compare that to alaska because Norway was under colonization for 500 years and they were first under a union with Sweden, no with with Denmark, I'm sorry, and then after that they were under a personal union with Sweden. And a personal union is where the two countries or the two nations have the same monarch but they have separate rules Separate boundaries, so so they have more of an independence, but they're still like in this union. And when Norway gained independence, um, you know there there was a really harsh assimilation policy of of the Sami and of the Kvans, which are the Finnish peoples of Norway, and. Like the most intense period was from like 1850 to 1970. So if we compare that to Alaska, you know, this is like the same the same time. It's not an, it's not an old history. It's relatively new of mm-hmm. like a simulation. And and in Norway, it's been called Norwegianization rather than colonization. Um, but researchers say that Norwegianization is actually a pretty peaceful word compared to actually calling it what it was like it was brutal and it had massive repercussions and there's a truth and reconciliation committee that's set up in Norway right now um, that is supposed to deliver its final report in 2022 so next year and I'm really curious about what that will amount to because you know even in that report or in this committee they're using that term Norwegianization and I feel like these um, semantics have allowed allowed colonization to seem maybe not as brutal brutal or that it hasn't had so many repercussions. And whereas Sami scholars say that you know colonization is still ongoing, it's not something of the past, but it's um, it's it's still going on today. So for me, that's part of my learning how to see. You know, I am I am a non-indigenous person, but I I see myself as an ally, and and I also reflect a lot on my privilege um, working in a Norwegian art museum, um, and then also with my background as an immigrant to to Norway, um, being an American. Mm-hmm. So. So I think like it's um, yeah, it's something that I'm still learning about and, but, but it's interesting to compare it to the conversations that are going on here with colonization and, and to see what work the museum is doing.
1: Has any of that impacted your work at the Northern Norway Art Museum and your research as part of your current PhD program?
0: Yeah, I I think so. I mean, and and this idea of being in the North, you know, we have so many similar themes. Um, We often say that we have more similarity circumpolarly rather than like a North-South relationship in Norway. I feel like in Alaska, you know, when you talk to people, you start on another level. Like people understand what you're talking about. And I don't always feel that when I travel to, you know, Oslo. Uh, southern part of Norway there's there's really this big like divide in Norway between northern issues and what's happening further south and in um, in like southern Norway um, and then looking at the arctic and and all the politics involved and I guess that goes back to this idea of you know museums not being neutral either and looking how politics informs or if you know affects affects the museum and and that landscape is interesting in a northern context
1: so you feel like alaskans are are more in tune with the colonization that occurred on our land
0: i think so and and i've seen that change happen since i was little you know i i grew up here and i skied at kincaid all throughout my childhood and i never knew of the stories that aaron leggett and the anchorage museum have worked with so that's sort of like you know the this myth of alaska being like an empty space or you know a a frontier that no one has has encountered. Mm-hmm. That sort of narrative, I would say, was more common when I was younger. And it's fascinating for me to see how that's changing and how I'm actually... We didn't talk about Anchorage being denying a lands when I was little. I didn't learn about that in school. So it's it's interesting for me to learn about that now and realize like, how much I didn't see when I was growing up here.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I grew up... Um, or when I was growing up, my parents were very in tune, you know, with the, uh, the idea that this land has been here with people on it for thousands and thousands of years. And so I grew up just, just knowing that. And, you know, friends around me also knew it. So, you know, that's kind of an interesting juxtaposition getting back to how you said Norwegians view their land and kind of their place on it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And in in Norway, you know, people will say that the Sami and the Norwegians have lived interwovenly or their cultures have been interwoven for a long, long time. So I think that's why you get these concepts like Nordic exceptionalism, and they they think of colonization happening somewhere else. But that doesn't like get rid of the history of assimilation, which is a very recent history. Um, so there's sort of this fight about, like, who came first, S- Sami or the Norwegians, but if you look at archaeology, like, the Sami were there first, but I think there are still many Norwegians today that have said, well, we have been here, you know, equally as long as the Sami. So it's um, it's really complex, and I, I feel like that's one thing I try to do in my work, is, like, try to avoid, like, uh, watering down the complexity, but giving space for ambiguity and complexity and realizing that these things are never like very easy black-white narratives like um and I think that's how they often are portrayed in the media and how you get this polarization of, you know, good, bad, um, and right or wrong. And it and it's usually not like that. It's usually really complicated and multifaceted.
1: You know, I've I've always thought that that is such an interesting thing to pursue and an interesting endeavor is to convey these extremely complex historical issues that like you said are so multifaceted. Do you have any maybe go-to ways that you go about conveying these these issues?
0: Um I guess just trying to always remember different perspectives, and keeping an open mind. Maybe like going into things and saying like, "I don't have all the answers. Like, how can I learn more about this?" Really like, uh, and it's something that how how do I say like, I feel like you're you're always learning things. So like,
2: mm-hmm.
0: I I probably won't do it right this time, but then I find something or like a new piece that will help me work in a different way next time um, but it's it's also like maybe learning through others like I i I really am a strong believer in collaboration and i I don't do any projects really without collaborating with other people so realizing that like you never get places on your own or alone Mm -hmm. um it's always in collaboration with other people and i think that that really allows you to have maybe add to that complexity like when you're when you're working with others and for others
1: yeah understanding that it is an ongoing conversation
0: right yeah you're never finished and never thinking like um, one thing I'm working with in my work right now is like trying to get away from the idea of being a superhero, like you can't fix everything <laughs> and, and not being too am- overly ambitious and just saying like, you know, I'm just contributing one small thing. I, I heard um, a talk by Heather Atone the other day, and she's a um, indigenous scholar and curator, and she said, you know, she likes to think of the Grand Canyon and the Grand canyon has this big divide and all of us that are working are like contributing with one pebble and eventually one day you know all these pebbles will will kind of fill that divide and i thought that was a nice metaphor
2: mm-hmm.
0: for thinking about it because yeah we're really only contributing one small piece but but then someone else can come along and build on that one pebble that you placed there
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that that's a very manageable way to look at it and a democratic way to look at it too, because everybody is contributing to this ongoing story. So right. then in effect, you know, we're all kind of owners of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that's kind of empowering to think about because, um, yeah, how amazing if it's like something that everyone feels like they, they have played a role or like they have a relation to it. Because I think that's what museums have failed at before is like doing these cool projects, but you know, visitors come and say, well, what's in it for me? Like, what does this have to do? But when you involve other people and work collaboratively and co-creatively, then it gives meaning to other people mm-hmm. um, much more than like just a museum laying out the facts or laying out the story and here you go
1: hmm How do you think museums can work towards helping the effort in decolonization?
0: I think that we need to do more than what we're doing. I mean, and that's been interesting for me to think about coming from Norway, because in Norway, there still is a lot of public funding for the arts. And so I feel like a lot of times, you know, that's really something that I I don't want to say like the museums are hiding behind but but I feel like in Norway a lot of times the museums aren't challenging enough for asking critical questions um and even provoking we did a project in 2019 called like Betsy and we did an intervention outside of the museum and that really like sparked something because we experienced that people that come to the museum are are usually in agreement with the museum and you don't engage with the groups that don't even know the museum exists but once you go outside of the museum then you engage with all these other groups that that you wouldn't have engaged with necessarily um but yeah i don't i don't think we're doing enough i mean from from my standpoint i think in norway there's a tendency to to maybe shy away from it and I um yeah I think we need to be held more accountable
1: Earlier, you said that museums can often be, or what you found is that they can often be echo chambers. You know, people that are like-minded and are in agreement with the museums are the ones going. How do you think museums can help spread that message to people who aren't part of that echo chamber?
0: Yeah, I think it's... I think it's bringing down that barrier and in especially if we look at so what differentiates the museum I work at from the Anchorage Museum is we are only an art museum and I especially in Norway you know art museums have this still today are seen I argue as elitist spaces spaces that are maybe associated with wealth or privilege or whiteness and and how do we um i feel like we have to do it in a meaningful way it can't just be a decolonization cannot just be a checklist it can't because then it's a metaphor and then it doesn't mean anything
2: Mm -hmm. so
0: it really has to be done um by engaging community and then yeah how do you engage those groups um but there's a long ways to go with like saying, you know, this belief that if if we say the doors are open to anyone, anyone will come in, because there there are still a lot of groups that don't feel like it's a welcome space for them. And it's something I think a lot about in my work, but um, decolonization can be as simple as starting a new conversation. And you can look at decolonization also as something super complex, and it is. But maybe it would help sometimes to simplify it a little bit and think of that as, yeah, decolonization can be starting a conversation. So maybe the museum goes out of its walls and engages with people through conversation just to get that spark going or to start to plant that little seed um, that will grow into something bigger and then it's it takes time too so it's something that has to be nurtured and cared for and worked continually worked on um, or else it, it becomes just a a trope or a, you know part of a checklist
1: yeah piece by piece like we were talking about earlier
0: right and i i love this phrase by the black space manifesto that says um, move at the speed of trust and trust is something that museums have traditionally had a lot of um with the public and and i like to think of that as my motto has become this move at the speed of trust so that you do things in a good way and you don't um you don't lose those relationships that you build up you're continually working on them and nurturing them but Mm -hmm. it, it does take a lot of time so it's it's not easy
1: do you think contemporary artists play a role in helping us understand our world?
0: Definitely. Um, and I, I feel that they challenge us and that and ask these critical questions, but they do it in such interesting ways. And, and especially, you know, looking at like interdisciplinary artists and, and artists that are doing interventions, I I find very inspirational and sort of like bridging the gap between reality and, and fiction um, have been very, very important right now with everything that is going on, like all the the issues that are going on right now in in our world.
1: Do you have any examples of maybe how certain pieces of art, can help us understand our world.
0: So I guess right now I'm I'm starting work on a paper on contested monuments and and I'm really inspired by a piece that um, Nicholas Galanin did in Australia. I believe it was Sydney for the biennial that was there. And how just this amazing way of like twisting it so that you yeah, it's such a simple move, but it, it is so empowering. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with the project, but there's a statue of Cook in Sydney in the public square. And he excavated like the silhouette of the monument in, in the grass. So it looks like the statue is casting a shadow on the grass, but it's cut out in the ground. And and it's sort of you know that I've seen monuments where they've covered them with like a plastic black garbage bag, so it looks like they're in a body bag, insinuating the act of like burying the, the monument in the ground. I thought was such a a powerful like statement and way to um, way to look at it. Uh, and this idea of what do we do with these contested monuments and these colonial legacies um burying it without really bearing it but like sh- showing that and then <laughs> so that's that's a piece i find very very interesting mm-hmm. and and i like this idea of like doing an intervention because it's also something that is temporary um but it's it's so empo- em powerful because with digital images you know people Interventions are often done in the public space, and people take take pictures of them, and then they're on social media. And so even though it was perhaps um, a temporary thing, then it isn't so temporary anymore because it exists and lives on through these digital images that are everywhere and shared globally. Mm-hmm. And then often artists using the same language that they're critiquing, I find really interesting. Um, there was an artist, and I don't have the name, I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but doing a billboard that says Make America Great Again and using a framing that within a, an ad for, um, like a political ad. and But then putting this Make America Great Again on a black and white image from the civil rights movement, of police officers meeting um, black protesters and then with the Make America Great on, Again on it and then framing it as a billboard that looks like it's a political ad. And those are the pieces that I find are very inspirational to me because they're in the public space. So I know that, like like you said, this idea of the echo chamber, museum visitors maybe had seen them if they were in the museum. but. Your average Joe that's on the street that wouldn't have visited the museum, seeing this piece and like reacting, <laughs> seeing it and reacting to it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I just looked that ad up and it looks like it was from the Political Action Committee for Freedoms mm-hmm. and it was a billboard in Pearl, Mississippi. Yep. Okay.
0: Yeah, that's right
1: and to what extent do you think that art serves as a mirror and prompts new ideas and reflections
0: I guess it's for me it's again goes back to learning to see and and the art inspires these critical questions and and challenges and provokes but but in beautiful ways um can't think of anything else to say, I guess.
1: The reason that I asked that question there was because the the two pieces that you you had previously mentioned, the one with the Captain Cook statue in Australia and mm-hmm. then this billboard in Mississippi, what they're doing is they're using these these traditional pieces of art or even monuments and then showing them in a different light right? and adding further context to them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, and I guess that's what artists often do is like, yeah, adding, adding context to working towards art that I'm really interested in right now is artists that are working towards telling the whole truth. Um, I think like in our day and age right now with politics, the, yeah, the p- current political situation, like truth is a really big, uh, something I've been thinking a lot about and a value that is very important. And then another value I think a lot about is um, love and, and care and how we do that through practice. And I think that art, artists often do things in loving and caring ways. Um, that is so void in other aspects of society Um, and maybe that's why i'm interested in these artists that are really socially engaged because we need to also ask like how are museums grappling with these huge questions in society today Mm -hmm. and and how are they how are we living up to our our role as social agents and and this idea of the public museum, you know, being owned by everyone in the community and the collection in the same way, thinking of it as the common good. Mm-hmm. And is it really? Are we, are we making it accessible to everyone in in society? I don't, I don't think so. So we need to ask, like, how do we, how do we do that? How do we make that happen?
1: Do you think that maybe that includes? putting these pieces in more public spaces
0: yeah i think so i just i mean i noticed like with our museum doing that intervention in the public square was much farther reaching than if we had done that in in our own building um definitely mm-hmm. and then questioning like can a museum do that because you know we had pushed back in our community and chomso saying an artist can do that, but a museum should not do that. And kind of questioning that, like, well, why do you say that? Um, Don't you see museums as being these change agents? Because I think a lot of people have this idea of an art museum as being this very traditional, you know, conservative, showing nice artwork that that makes you feel good. (laughs) And then Mm -hmm. why do we want to be challenged in this way?
1: When it comes to curating an exhibition, what does that research process look like?
0: Usually, it builds on a lot of years of work and of other relationships you had. I guess it varies from project to project. But if I'm working on a project as a curator that I don't know a lot about the content, then I I need to collaborate with with um, people that know more that are that know more about that topic and. You know, when I started my research project, I called it working on curatorial methodologies and strategies, mm-hmm. and I'm sort of stepping away from that and and speaking more along the lines or thinking more along the lines of museum practice, because I, I think projects are most exciting when you blur the boundaries between the different departments at the museum, um, and it's a better way of working. It's, it's easier to include people and work together when you don't think of like the curator as the, the sole owner of the project. Cause I've, mm-hmm. I've had that issue where there's sort of a snobbery in Norway where the curator gets all the attention and maybe the, the museum educator played equally or even more of a role in the project, but then it's the curator that gets the the credit for the whole, the whole exhibition. So I, I like to think of you know, in my work, administration is e- as equally as important as perhaps the museum educator. We're all working together and then and then you have more ownership in the project through through different individuals rather than just a couple that um, really feel strongly like they've been included. And then starting early in the project where it's not so far along that you can that people can, add content and feel like they're really contributing to it Um, so that that's something that like we're a small institution so we have the benefit of doing that working more closely with each other whereas in a a larger museum maybe you have um, not quite as much involvement from from different people but I see a lot of advantages as being a small institution you know we can perhaps be a little more flexible sometimes and, and not be seen as this museums are often seen as like slow moving beasts,
2: and Mm -hmm. trying
0: to work away from that idea that like, well, we can like be more nimble and flexible and do things differently.
1: This, this next question gets to your ongoing education. So there are people who pursue education with the end goal of being an educator do you see yourself as an educator or an academic or do you see yourself as someone who is using education as a means of understanding and then progressing an issue
0: yeah i definitely see myself as using my education to understand things um i don't see myself as an academic in my project i I mean, I I am an academic. I'm pursuing a PhD, but but I I'm trying to bridge the gap between practice and theory. Um, I often see people focusing on theory, but then how does that play out in practice? Like, mm-hmm. so I'm trying to see how can I use theory as a tool in my work as a curator, and 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 can it go the other way around? How can I use practice to to work in in the theory um so my um my project is a public sector phd and it's a little bit different than if i was only based at the university it's sort of trying to to engage institutions with or public institutions with the university and and i'm hoping (laughs) to bridge the gap or to, to try to tie theory and practice together. Um, because yeah, why are we doing the theory if it's not a practical tool? Like what's the point?
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like my education is giving me tools for my future work to hopefully see that better is possible.
1: That's great. I like that better is possible.
0: Yeah. I have, so I have post-it notes in my research and that's one of my post-it notes. (laughs) Really? Yeah. My, I have these post-it notes that sort of get you through, you know, like one day at a time. And, um, allies have the responsibility to act, um, a way of thinking through how we might do something different, opening space to move forward. And my key one that I, that is very important is don't get it right get it written Mm -hmm. and and that's sort of something I struggled with in the beginning you know there's this sort of you're doing a PhD at the university and it's a scary thing and and a lot of people like have this performance of like setting up their office and 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 then you don't you don't you're you're always reading but you're not writing so Mm -hmm. it's better to to get things down and see writing as part of the learning process rather than like the final written word
1: when did you start collecting those post-its
0: um i started when fall of 2019 when i started my project because there's sort of these you know like moving move at the speed of trust i had all these like um Things that sort of spoke to me, like when I was doing my research and and talking to people and I was like, oh, that's good. And then you just like write it down. And Mm -hmm. and I'm, you know, in the digital age, like we do a lot more reading digitally instead of like in in books and and even typing instead of writing. But there's something there's something about like the the post-it notes or like Mm -hmm. the, the piece of paper that. I, I think it has meaning and it's a it's a different um uh, it's a different way of seeing that uh, than seeing it just on the screen.
1: Well, it's tangible, you know, tangible, you can touch but, yeah, it. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. And um and another one that's really important is if you want a different future, change your now. hmm So that that's another one that has stuck with me. And I guess like for me, these phrases are sort of like, have become my friends and my tools, uh, just the way that books are and different theorists where in my work, I feel like if I start reading a theorist that speaks to me, um, they're definitely like, they become my quote unquote friend or or my tool. And I've been doing work on um, feminist theory and Sarah Ahmed's concept of the feminist killjoy and trying to see how we can use the feminist killjoy as a, as a tool in curatorial practice or in museum practice. And she talks about, like, you need to have your friends, and, and a lot of times those friends are the books you're reading. And going back to them and reading them, because I, I know that, like, I'll read a book, and then I might put it away and pick it up six months later and read it in a totally different way um, based on what I what I've learned since then. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, like establishing like friends as researchers that are working on similar themes. Like you can't work on this, like the work I'm doing, I feel like you can't do it alone. It has to be done. And decolonization work can't be done alone. It has to be done with others and in, in sort of a community of other researchers or museum workers that are also doing that work.
1: Do you see any similarities across the international Arctic borders?
0: Yeah, definitely and and like I was saying, I feel like you kind of feel like you're meeting your people as you meet other people in the circumpolar north. It's you're already uh, one step ahead in the conversation. It's like you you get what you're talking about um, that I don't I don't see as much when I'm in other like outside of the north. And I've done projects, like, collaborated with people in n- Northwest Russia, and and also, like, throughout Sapme South, South and Sweden and Finland, um, and even, like, through Canada and Alaska. But, yeah, there's this, like, common understanding of, of issues, and, and, you know, we're experiencing climate change at a faster rate than other places in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, relating on those issues and... And resources extraction, um, you know, Norway is known to be very green in terms of uh, renewable energy, doing a lot of work with like hydroelectric power, wind turbines. But at the same time, it's built on yeah, petroleum, so mm-hmm. it, it's kind of looking at, at at those stories too. I um. And there is a lot of pushback from Sami communities on wind turbines, and it's not my field of study, but it, these are issues that really interest me and that are very valid today. Um, and also resources extraction through mining and, and in Norway, a lot of people complain about resources being ex- extracted from the north and taken outside of the north and, and sort of seeing, seeing that in Alaska and, and what's going on. And, and it really, it breaks my heart that it can be happening and, and what do we do as, as a museum? What role can we play in, in working on those issues? And that's what fascinates me about the Anchorage Museum being an interdisciplinary museum and how they incorporate art through their projects, you know, as opposed to being like a traditional art museum. Because I, I like the way art is a natural part of working through those issues rather than like seeing something, seeing art as something separate and that can't play a role or have a voice in these conversations. Mm-hmm. And there we have a long ways to go, but why aren't artists included on important debates, you know, and why aren't they at the table? We have a lot of conferences um, in Tromso that have deal with arctic issues in the circumpolar north and why is there this division between like the scientists and the politicians and why aren't artists in these conversations on these serious issues because Mm -hmm. i feel like in in norway maybe people don't see that link or see artists as equally important in and discussing and working through these things taking art seriously and artists seriously.
1: Mm -hmm. What is important to you for people to understand about Northern places?
0: I think, um, and the museum or the Anchorage museum works a lot on this, but seeing it not as a periphery, but also that it's, equally the center as other places like it just depends on your perspective and and seeing it as a as a place of complexity and not this empty desolate open place but a place of of histories and indigenous knowledges and people and also you know all the the natural life the wildlife that lives there Mm -hmm. um But yeah, seeing it as a place of complexity and not this like romanticized, um, exotic, like, exotified entity or object.
1: This man-made thing. Right. You know, when you think about, when you think about your work, your mission, and also the people you've met along the way, what kind of stories come to mind?
0: that's a big big question too um i guess like just this idea of connecting with people that we always have more similarity than we'd like to think and um my work has been amazing that through art i have interacted and encountered and met so many amazing people and i'm just so grateful that i've had these opportunities but um and then being in the north and seeing how similar we are through across borders and across all of these different like political landscapes but at the end of the day we're just people you know living in different places and we have a lot of similarity despite our differences Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and we need to work together that you know with indigenization and decolonization there are so many complex issues but i feel like we people need to work together or else we're never going to get anywhere Mm -hmm. and that's way easier said than done but (laughs) but but i think like yeah if people would approach things with a good heart and an open mind i think that would take us very far
1: When I was writing questions for you, something that kept popping up in my, my Google research was rethinking art in the circumpolar North. What, what does it mean to rethink art in the circumpolar North?
0: Um, for me, rethinking is, goes back to this idea of learning to see and undoing. And for me, my, my life and my my place is the circumpolar north. Um, I, like I said, I have two homes in my heart in Norway and in Alaska. And that's where it always, always will be. And my work has been writing about and thinking about artists and art that haven't been part of the the dominant narrative, I guess you could say. Like when I went to, I did my undergraduate work in art history in Montana at Montana State University. And we always in our art history courses hopped over the chapters that I wanted to learn more about like African art or Asian art. We only focused on like Western European art, which I also really am interested in, but but we never looked at the art that was in our place. You know, I, Wendy Red Star is an artist I really admire, and she was in one of my courses, um, an Indigenous artist, and she, she's still practicing today, um, but now she's based in Portland. Um, but I thought, why are we learning about Native American art? We're in Montana, you know,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and, and then I moved to Northern Norway and started my master's, and we could choose anything we wanted to do our, Thesis on in art, and I thought I've always wanted to learn more about the art in my place. Uh, so that entailed doing doing a cross a cross-comparative study between an Alaska native artist, um, Nupiak artist Ron Snungatuk, and a Sami artist, Sami Norwegian artist named Auslag Juliusen. And it was the first time in my education that we had studied that I was able to study like art that was around me and in my local environment. And it seems kind of like straightforward, but but at that time, it actually wasn't that straightforward. Usually we look outside, we look to other places and why don't we look the other way and write about the art that we should know the mm-hmm. best that's in related to our place and our landscape and and that's definitely changed since since that time, or it is changing. but but it's for me, it's always about making room for new stories in in the canon because I don't think we'll ever get away from the our historical canon, but we can always add new things to it. Mm-hmm. and um, and I feel like I have a responsibility to add to add new things to that canon from the north to make it more representative of of a bigger, bigger story.
1: What brought you from Alaska to Norway?
0: Cross-country skiing. I I used to be a competitive racer, and I have Norwegian ancestry. And my senior year of high school, I went to Diamond High School. Our coach took us to Sweden and Norway to do some competitions for a two-week period. And I was a senior in high school, and I came home, and I told my mom, I'm moving to Norway (laughs) and, and I don't think she believed me, but I, I was serious about it. So, so she said, well, you can do an exchange later on. So, so I did, I, my sophomore year of college, um, I was skiing for Montana state and, and I knew there was a, a ski club in Oslo that I wanted to train with. So, so I did a study abroad there and, really fell in love with Norway and um, met my husband and well, my later, <laughs> my, he wasn't my husband at that time, but I met my partner and wanted to go back to Norway. And and then we moved to Tromsø um, to study. Both of us went for the university thinking that we would Maybe study and then move somewhere else in Norway, but we fell in love with with Tromsø and and the landscape. It felt for me, northern Norway feels more like Alaska than southern Norway, and you know there's fjords and mountains and and more like of a extreme winter than you have in southern Norway. So. So yeah, that was, I moved there in 2004 and, and here we mm-hmm. are. <laughs> um, but I love like, for me, the Anchorage Museum has sort of become our sister institution and and collaborating projects like that go here and there. And, and now seeing what we can do gi- digitally, um, and realizing like, why did we travel so much before when we could do like digital meetings and connecting with people? So that's one thing I think has been amazing with COVID that I hope continues is realizing that it's also much better for our planet if we're not traveling so much. So, mm-hmm. um, and seeing how you can, you can connect remotely. Um, there are definitely like advantages to meeting in person, but there's a lot we can do um digitally
1: when you consider this life path you've taken you know your education your work moving to norway do you feel like you have an overall personal goal
0: um maybe that's something i should think more about i guess i always i'm very passionate in anything i i do and I um I just hope I contribute as a as a member of society and that I I'm definitely in a position of privilege and I I like to I I check myself every now and then like hoping that I'm contributing contributing in a good way um, but um, right now my work is is focused on changing the museum through these little pebbles that I'm contributing with, um, because I don't feel that everyone, not everyone I work with is asking these questions or um, wanting to challenge themselves. So so I guess I've always been one that likes challenging things and I like being challenged and maybe just seeing that as a skill set that I can contribute with. What part of my skill set can I contribute contribute with? because um, I guess that's just how I'm wired, but I haven't really realized that not everyone is wired like that. And I think I've learned a lot through sports. I like having that connection and background of of being a former athlete, That seeing how that informs my work as well. Because um, there's also, like, in the art world, sometimes art historians frown down on sports. You know, I had a professor in Bozeman that he wanted to lower my grade because I missed class because of athletics and, and it's a university sponsored event. So you actually can't do that. But, but breaking down that barrier of like, why do we have a snobbery between sports and, and art? It shouldn't exist (laughs) because Mm -hmm. being active and athletic is a, is a healthy thing, like good for your mind and body.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, Sharice, that does it for my questions. Do you have anything else you'd like to add?
0: No, I think I'm good. I hope I haven't rambled on too much. Like it's, you're very like easy to talk to, so.
2: Well, thank you, I appreciate um, that.
0: And and I hope I explained the art projects well enough. Like, um, but this was really fun. Like it, it also gives me new ideas and thoughts to, to keep thinking on.
1: For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Music was produced by Keezy Baby.